Joining us today for Superheroes of Science, we have Mohit Verma. Mohit is an assistant professor with the Department of Agriculture and Biological Engineering. Did I get that right? Yep. Okay, great. <laughs> All right. There, so there a lot of title. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so let's start. I mean, I guess we start with the most obvious. It's uh, I say we've we've seen um, different things put out in the news with you on it. Mm -hmm. uh, most recent, obviously, COVID's in the news every day, and uh, but your name was related to some of those new art news articles, and so uh, so people know I'm not talking about a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you explain what is going on and why you're um, in the news now. Yeah. So what my lab has been doing most recently is developing a better test for COVID-19, and really the idea is can we um get the results out faster can we use saliva instead of using those deep nasal swabs that are used right now um and make it simpler to use as well so rather than having to do the test in the lab they can be done let's say at the doctor's office to start with and then eventually maybe even at home so that's what my lab has been working on and that's why um the media has been covering us essentially but go ahead sir well how when did you begin looking at these tests so that sounds pretty specific like it is certainly a test for covid at what point did your group think okay we're going to start looking at at improving these tests yeah so we've been working on this for since the pandemic started so we've been working on it since april um and we have external collaborators that we've been working on um for the past three months four months coming up now um, and uh, that's why, I mean, it's actually, usually these things would still take years to develop, um, but just because of the pandemic, we've kind of tried to be on an accelerated timeline. Um, the nice thing about it is we've been working on a similar test for animal health for the past uh, two years, right? So um, just to detect bacteria, detect viruses, um, you can use nucleic acids and you can tell which bacteria might be present or not. Because we've been, we had that um, going on for the past two years, we had all the experience that was necessary. We just had to kind of adapt that platform and apply it to COVID-19 at the beginning of this year. Um, late See, that's where I wanted to ask about, because I'm like, wait a minute, you're uh, with the whole agriculture, you're like, what was it, bovine research is what you were studying, if I remember right? Yep, that is correct. So I was like, uh, now I, I know some people that uh, are stubborn as a mule, but uh, it, <laughs> I just want to know how that, how you could just take what you research mm -hmm. in a bovine to apply it to a human. Yeah. yeah. So um, our bovine project actually started um, almost two and a half years ago now. And that really kind of started because I was sitting next to a farmer and an engineer. He was mentioning that my cattle get sick and we can't tell which, which bacteria, which bugs are causing the infection. So they don't know which antibiotic to give and they can't figure that out. Um, in the farm, lab-based tests are too slow. So when I was talking to him, I was like, there's got to be a solution that's pretty simple because you can just detect which DNA is present and tell which bug is um, present. And apparently there wasn't. So that's when we started saying, okay, can we develop something that could be done in the field, give you a result within 30 minutes and easy to use so that farmers or veterinarians could use it rather than having to send it in the lab, right? So that's when we started thinking about it. And then we started looking into, can we detect DNA or RNA? Because that's what... Um, that's how you can identify which bacteria or virus are present, uh, depending on the sequence of the nucleic acids, sequence of the DNA or RNA, you can tell which bacteria might be present. So 
because it's a nucleic acid-based technology, like everyone, every, all living things have nucleic acids, right? So we have uh, DNA within us. Um, viruses have RNA a lot of times, which is very similar to DNA, just um, uh, slightly different chemically, but it also has sequences. Depending on the sequence, you can identify which pathogen is present or not. Um, the technique to actually detect it is the same, which is you detect which sequence is present, you um, amplify that sequence, and then that creates a color change, essentially. And that's how you can tell whether something is present or not. Um, because the sequence of the virus were available, we could basically target the virus instead of targeting the uh, animal pathogens, essentially. Um, we could tar target the coronavirus. Uh there is so much good stuff in, in that last minute or minute and a half that you just said. So I, I guess I want to go back to the, sort of the beginning with this. So for we, a lot of times we have students and, and classes of students that will watch this. So to help with that, let's start with DNA and RNA. So I know you, you talked just a little bit about that and you said that RNA tends to maybe be present with viruses. We have DNA and RNA. So can you speak just a little bit about just on a basic term, what Basically, what is DNA? What is RNA? Yep. And, and then my second part, and I'm sorry, Stephen, I'm going to ask a bunch of questions here. But um, <laughs> so how many, what are the differences between, you said you first started this with maybe detecting bacteria for bovine, and now you've moved this into the COVID. So what are the similarities and differences with this test between a bacteria that you're looking for and then now transferring this test for a virus? Yeah, so that's that's good. Good questions, actually. So DNA is um, deoxyribonucleic acid, and RNA is ribonucleic acid, right? So if you notice, even in the abbreviation, it's just the deoxy that's different, which actually tells you what the real difference is, because in the structure, it's basically a hydroxyl group, um, which is an OH group, which is removed in DNA, and uh, the RNA has it. That's the main difference between DNA and RNA. So they both of them have four building blocks. Um, in DNA, it's A, T, G, and C. In RNA, it's A, U, G, and C. So it's basically one of the bases is replaced. And those building blocks will tell you, um, they're just kind of linked together to give you the sequence of, um, of the DNA or RNA. Um, normally, what happens is DNA is kind of like the code that's written up. It gets translated to RNA, um, even in our bodies, and then that RNA um, gets transcribed into uh, proteins, essentially, and the proteins are what are active. Um, in the case of viruses, um, you basically just start with the RNA, uh, a lot of the viruses, not all. Some viruses are DNA-based, some viruses are RNA-based. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, it's RNA-based. So you start with the RNA, and then you can go from there, essentially. So that's kind of how there's differences. All bacteria are DNA-based, so you, we're looking at DNA, essentially, and that's what we were doing initially. And that was the main difference that we had to do. Instead of looking at DNA, you had to go to RNA, detect, be able to detect RNA, essentially. Um, so the main change that happens is, in, in, in life generally, it's, it's DNA to RNA to protein. Um, for the assay that we are developing, we're, because we can detect DNA very easily, what we're doing is we're taking the RNA from the virus, um, reverse transcript, transcribing it to um, DNA and then detecting it, essentially. Um, I might have used the terms wrong earlier. I think it's, it's sorry, it's DNA to RNA is transcription and then RNA to protein is translation. Yes. Oh, oh, great. Oh, that's, a, that's great to bring that up too. Okay, DNA to RNA is transcription. Yep. And RNA to protein is, you said translation? Yeah. Perfect. Okay. I, I remember these terms from biology, but it's been a while. Oh, Same here. 
<laughs> it's been quite a while for me. Uh, it's that, but yeah. So it's like I know I've, I've heard of DNA. Yeah, I, I remember that vaguely from biology, yeah. and uh, I know I see it on Jurassic Park and other movies. Where they're <laughs> trying to replicate DNA because, yeah. So, but once you go beyond that, I'm like, oh, well, it's it's uh, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, right now, for example, you'll hear RT-PCR for the COVID-19 testing. You'll see a lot of times that that's in the news because that's the that's the standard method that's being used in the labs and. There, the RT actually stands for reverse transcription because they're taking the RNA from the virus, converting it to DNA, and then detecting the DNA. Uh, and the PCR is polymerase chain reaction. So what that does is actually just once the DNA, one single strand of DNA is present, the polymerase chain reactions turns that single strand into many strands so that you can actually see how see whether the DNA is there or not. Because just being able to see a single strand is very difficult. So you need to amplify it, and that's what the PCR bit does. PCR. What I, didn't the, realize, I didn't realize that was the testing that was happening. So that's really cool to hear exactly why I, I knew it was the deep nasal yep. um, swabs that they were getting, but I didn't realize that was the process. Yeah, so that's interesting. And Stephen, sorry, I cut you off. Well, I was just going to ask, what's the difference between the like the deep nasal uh, thing uh, versus the saliva? What's the difference between those two areas that allowed different tests? Yeah, so um, deep nasal has been the standard just because uh, I think from previous outbreaks and so on, people knew that yes, deep nasal works in the case of, uh, sorry, deep nasopharyngeal swab works in the case of um, SARS-like coronavirus. And that's why that has been the standard all along. Then there have been studies since then, since the pandemic broke out to show that saliva actually seems to contain just as much or even more viruses and therefore it can be used. Saliva as a matrix is a little bit tricky, right? Because it can vary from person to person quite a lot. So that's why um, we don't fully understand how well these tests will work. So I think Rutgers was one of the first ones to start using saliva tests and they've been establishing, yes, they work as well as NP or better. Essentially, Since then we've been, um, because when we started developing this, we were actually looking at NP swabs, but when the studies for saliva started coming out, we adapted it, our test to saliva because it will be easier to use um, let more compliance from the patients and easier to retest if we need to, right? So that's why we focus. We started focusing on saliva. Now you said that you were able to detect a color change with this. So what's mm -hmm. the process that, or, or as much as you can tell us about the process yeah. about? So from a saliva sample, and then that's trans. Okay, now I'm getting it backwards. Trans, trans reverse transcription to mm -hmm. DNA. Okay, and then it's amplified through PCR. And then how does that work with seeing a color change? Or yeah, so, so this is where we actually distinguish ourselves. So this, the standard lab method is PCR. And um, because PCR is a sensitive reaction, you actually need to process your sample before that reaction can happen. So that's why you need to extract the RNA, uh, make sure that's pure, you don't have any interfering agents, and then do PCR, and then you get the result. In that case, what happens is you can typically use a fluorescent dye and that fluorescent dye will bind to uh, the double-stranded DNA as it's being amplified, and the, ink, and the signal in fluorescence will increase, and that's what you can get. Um, so that's the typical lab procedure. But what mm -hmm. we're doing is we're using a different method. The reverse transcription part is still the same, so we're doing that part, but we're using a different method instead of PCR, and it's called loop-mediated isothermal amplification, or LAMP for short. So the, um, the main difference between PCR and LAMP 
is in PCR, what you need to do is to amplify the DNA. You need to keep changing the temperature up and down, keep cycling it. Whereas in the case of LAMP, you can just keep it at a fixed temperature and the amplification will still happen. What that does is now you just need a heater, just like a hot plate or like a water bath, um, and you can do the amplification instead of needing this expensive equipment, usually like a thermocycler, which you need for PCR. And because you can do that, you can make these tests portable. So now um, one of the things that happens with RT lamp, which is reverse transcription lamp, is that um, the amount of DNA that it produces is quite high. So it will produce a lot of DNA. And in that case, you can detect it just like you do with um, PCR. You can add fluorescent dye and you can detect it using a fluorescent instrument. But because this change is quite high, it also changes the pH of the solution. So every time um, the DNA molecule becomes bigger, it is mm -hmm. producing protons, and these protons um, will change the pH. That pH change can be detected with a pH indicator dye, essentially. Oh. Um, so that essentially gives you a color change, and that's what you can see with your eye. So this sounds a little simpler then than the up and down with the temperature and and, exactly. and the fluorescent dye. If you can detect it with a um, a pH indicator that, and, and keep it at one simple temperature, could, yes. would you be able to then feasibly get results a little quicker? Yeah, so because it doesn't involve so many steps, um, that's why we can get the results on site in this heater kind of thing, uh, and you can just read them right away. Kind of wow. That's, that's the whole advantage. We're going after 30 minutes is our goal. Uh, right now we're at 45, but yeah, definitely trying to keep that under an hour. And, and rather than having to send the samples off somewhere, you get the results. Yeah. I'll just do it right there. Wow. Yeah, that is, that is awesome. Yeah. And so with the research you were doing on bovine, it was that through saliva also then? Um, so there we're looking at nasal swabs because it is, um, it is a respiratory disease and that's what's shown over there, that nasal swabs and nasopharyngeal swabs are kind of equivalent. So it's a very similar thing. Nasal swabs are also fairly easy to get, right? So um, in the case of animals, we were looking at nasal swabs and then that swab goes into, let's say, water so that you can take that water and put, do the same kind of test. Um, so we, that's what we do. Okay. How close are you to having this where it could, or, or are you already to the point where you can be using this with people or are you still? So, yeah, not quite. So um, to get there, what you need to do is um, you need to get an FDA approval under the emergency use authorization or EUA. Right now, what we have is in the lab, it works well. So we've been showing some color changes and so on. And we're in the process of um, getting into clinical studies, essentially, to show that it works well. Um, and that's where our partners are helping us, basically, um, and getting that study, those studies going on. So once the clinical study is done, um, Sometime in August, most likely in about a week, um, it, the clinical study will last about a week. And um, once that's done, those results go into your emergency use authorization and then you get FDA approval essentially. So sometime in August is where our goal is right now to get that going. Um, at the beginning, we will, um, we're targeting point of care markets, which means that at the doctor's office or the pharmacy office, something like that. Um, and in the long term, if you can get more support and funding, then we can kind of build it towards the at-home use. Oh, wow. That is cool. That is cool. Yeah. How, I mean, all right, so COVID, I mean, that's like changed the entire planet. And so yeah. I, I see where the emergency things and more people are collaborating and we're, 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 we're trying to all as a 
the human society come together to find something for this problem. And so how often does this type of collaboration happen outside of a global pandemic? Um, it still very much does happen. It's just at a different pace. So, for example, um, if you take the animal example, right, the one, the bone respiratory disease that we're working on, it's not just me working on it. I mean, there's actually like um, almost 10 different faculty members from campus that are involved in the project. And that includes people from animal sciences, people from veterinary medicine, um, from these different departments, uh, even from the School of Communication and so on. Um, so, because I think the way to tackle real problems and getting something useful out is to work with different experts who can who can contribute to um, contribute their own experience and their own aspect to to the the project. So I think it happens. It's just um, the pace is very different. So for example, uh, we recently got a grant from the USDA to work on the bovine respiratory disease project, and that is spanned over three years, right? So um, because normally things take that much time. Um, but in this case, we don't have that much time, so we got to try to do the same kind of thing in a few months, essentially. Wow. And so, Will, you're researching uh, ways of identifying. Mm -hmm. And so, does your does that then your research passed on to someone who is trying to combat, as in ah. to stop or yeah. prevent or? So, so the. Um, in terms of antivirals and so on, that would be um, almost independent. It will be independently developed. So the way they link up is obviously to tell whether you have the, the virus or not, right? So once the test is positive, then of course you need antivirals, um, if that's our first step, um, for the ones who are turning up positive. So that's kind of how they link for sure. Okay. That makes sense. But and it's good. It's because they're working on that now, and you're working on this, and so we don't have to wait on you to figure out for sure how to identify it before we can start finding the cure exactly. or exactly, yeah, antiviral or whatever we call it. Yeah, and a lot of people on campus are working on that as well, I believe. Wow, yeah, that's awesome. And so, what your your area? If I'm thinking if. If someone's like, "Wow, I think I, I think I would like to go in and be able to do something like that," so you're all right. It's, I know we said at the beginning, but uh, is both biology and ag both is combination, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, although I don't actually have a ag background, so um, my training has been in, for example, my bachelor's was in nanotechnology engineering from University of Waterloo in Canada. And my PhD was in the same thing. It was in nanotechnology, essentially. And then I did my postdoc in a in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Harvard University under Professor George Whitesides. Uh, and then I came over here. So I kind of just have a very diverse background. And during my training in nanotechnology, during my PhD, I actually started applying um, tools and methods from nanotechnology into microbiological problems. So we were detecting pathogens back then. That's how I kind of got more into microbiology and um, microbiome-related research. Um, so that's my training. And then um, when I came here is when I started learning about these problems in ag where I could use these training, this training that I had, and that's how I started applying it. So as an engineer, I think we're always starting, we're always um, kind of solving problems. That's, that's the 
key thing that's the common thing amongst all engineers um and that's how i've been as well um we kind of get intrigued by whatever problems are there now how big of a jump was it to go from i'm thinking of the prefixes so to go from studying nanotechnology to then going to microbiology because to me that sounds like quite a jump in terms of scale but was it i don't i mean not knowing anything about these yeah, so nanotechnology obviously deals with anything in the one to 100 nanometer scale, right? And then um, it, typically a lot of it is about material science. So for example, what I was working on was gold nanoparticles. And of course we all know about gold, it's golden color and um, as bulk material. But what happens is when you take those gold to the small size in that size range of 20 nanometers, let's say, um, then it changes color to red or blue, depending on the size. And that gold you can use to detect bacteria. So what happens is if you have a single particle, it will look red. If you have aggregates of particles, then it will look blue. So if, if the bacteria caused this aggregation, you could get a color chain from red to blue. That's what my PhD was on. So I was basically using these gold nanoparticles to detect bacteria. And bacteria are about 1,000 nanometer in size, let's say. Okay. So you can have multiple gold nanoparticles interact with bacteria and work at that scale. Viruses are in the 200 nanometer range um, okay. or smaller. So it's kind of all in the same scale um, uh, within an order of magnitude. And um, the training in nanotechnology is actually quite diverse. So we learn biochemistry, we learn all these different things, which actually help, um, which were useful for me to get into microbiology and learn microbiology during my research. Um, so it wasn't that difficult, at least for me, it wasn't that difficult of a transition. Um, but yeah. Very neat. How did you get started in on that path? What or um and I guess the second question for students interested in in things like this, maybe detecting bacteria and detecting viruses, what are some what would you suggest that they start with at the high school level to to start their path towards something like this? Um in high school, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So, yeah, I don't think I've changed now. So, but um, I, for me, at least, it was more during my undergrad um, because during my undergrad, what we had was something called a co-op experience. What that means is you kind of study for four months and go work for four months, like an internship, um, and that's formally part of your uh, program. So at the University of Waterloo, where I went to undergrad in Canada, um, that was formally part of the program, so you had to go find a job. And doing those jobs is where I actually learned um, what I enjoy and what I don't enjoy. And one of the things I really did enjoy is when I started working in a lab with a professor, because there was a lot of um, independent research, a lot of new things that no one has done before. Um, and it was a bit really about exploring. And that's when I learned, oh, I really like these kind of things. And that's how I think. So um, generally, I think it's, it's a good idea to get some experience and just try it out kind of um, and see what you like. Um, that's how you learn about, um, it's a lot of hands-on training and experiential training, and that's how you learn whether you get into this field. I, but I like that. Are we talking about being open-minded and, and just trying new things and seeing what you like? Yeah. I mean, those are things that we tell kids all the time. Yeah. And it's coming from you is going to have a lot more <laughs> credibility. <laughs> so, I love yeah. the idea that it, that you would like you said, classes for several months and then a job for several months. And so you get the hands on almost like a trial, you know, is this for me? Yep. And then maybe if it's not, it sounds like you could 
you could switch up and there really aren't any penalties and yeah exactly so there were for example in my case there were four different co-op terms and you could choose a different job each time if, if you wanted um so yeah definitely that's, that's very useful i think that's how i figured out what my career path was so <laughs> it, it was very useful well, I think that's good to realize too that not everybody's going to know. I think there's a lot of pressure sometimes on kids to, well, what do you want to be? What are you going to do? Or even just which college are you going to go to? And or 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 post secondary, you know, path are you going to take? And that's a lot to decide at that age. And so I think to hear it's helpful to hear from some people like I didn't know until I got you know a little more farther in that okay, I kind of like doing this. This is something. Yeah, definitely. For example, in my case, I was deciding between aerospace engineering and technology, two very different things. And yeah. who knows <laughs> where you would have ended up if I went to aerospace. So. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, it's you are. I mean, I, I don't know. I think you're a STEM poster child because yeah. I mean, you're an engineer doing science, creating technology. And it's like you're it proof. That, I mean, when we tell students that, yeah, all these are interconnected so well that uh, it's obviously uh, you're a uh, you're our proof for that that uh, these things are interconnected and uh how important they are to be a part of each other yeah but with you i, I was gonna because at first i was gonna say well what does a scientist i'm like well he's an engineer well no he's a scientist so what does a stem person <laughs> like you what do you how do you think of your next thing and so, it, all right, so it, let's say in August this gets approved and you have that pushed out and then you're, you're finishing up the bovine, the bovine, the bovine uh, research. And so how do you figure out what the next thing you're going to study to do to create to improve the world with? Um, um, a lot of times it actually also depends on where you are in your career. So um, right now as a faculty, a lot of times I am essentially looking at um, what are the new ideas that uh, people are looking for solutions to. Um, I can give you an example. For example, um, this bovine respiratory disease project, right? It started because I was sitting next to a farmer and he told me this is a real problem. And that's why I was like, okay, let's come up with a solution. So, and because we had that platform going then earlier last year, actually, so around December, 2019, um, DARPA, which is the Defense Research Agency Act, kind of had this um, call for proposals for how do you create devices that can be rapidly reconfigured in case there was a pandemic, right? So this was early before the pandemic, and we were like, okay, I think we could do it. We could use some of our expertise, and we got the team together to try to put a proposal together for that. Um, and then when March came around and then there was actually a pandemic, we were like, okay, the DARPA plan was four years long. It will take a long time to get that going. How about let's see what we can do right now, because now we have the team already in place and let's start working on that. So that's kind of how these ideas um, come together. And we had a team together. We had all the pieces together. We started working on it. Uh, a lot of times as a faculty now, it's more um, what problems are out there, which are relevant to solve that's kind of how um, I get inspired. And I'm like, oh yeah, this sounds interesting. And I think this is something we can do, then we can go with it. Um, that's that's kind of how we uh, pick it up. Yeah. I so it's I really like that you mentioned um, sitting and listening or, or just speaking with someone out on the front lines, like a farmer who this is a real problem. To me, that is, that's perfect because that just brings home that communication and um, and just, really yourself going out and talking to the people that are right there that are dealing with these. So how often 
do you get opportunities to interact with people where that were, I guess, where the it almost sounds like where the problems originate? Yeah. Um, I mean, Purdue is nice. That's the biggest thing in my department, right? In agriculture and biological engineering and being in both College of Agriculture and College of Engineering, um, we actually get to see a lot of um, different people from different backgrounds. And um, Purdue, I think, does a good job of actually almost holding these networking events. That's where this conversation actually happened. They were actually trying to bring people from ag and engineering together to try to solve these problems. That's how it all started, right? Uh, so before the pandemic, there were these events where we could basically go to and chat with and find out what's going on. And that's where I would usually connect. Um, now we'll have, now it will depend on things like conferences or something else. Um, um, actually that, that, that's where it happens really. It's, it's these networking events where you get to talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, this is a problem. Why don't you try, uh, could your platform work for this or something like that? Then we go there. Um, every few months or so, I would say. I love that. And I think that just takes effort on, on everyone's part, really, to, to stay involved and to stay networking with others. And I imagine now it might be a little more of a challenge right now until everyone's used to this new way of doing things, but. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good point. But it's the whole networking, thing, that's, that's cool. I mean, that, that is really neat. Yeah, and it's. Uh, we tell students again the, the importance of being able to communicate and, with people, and uh, how important that is to for science for anything you do. Being able to communicate with others is a skill that we want to work on, and so uh, for you guys to be able to talk to each other and start sharing ideas enough to where it would click, yeah. and you guys go, you know, we could collaborate on this, we could make something happen, yep. which leads to that, then leads to you uh, helping identify people who you know, are part of a global pandemic. You know, you, just, yeah. you never thought you would be here. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, and I myself, I'm an introvert, so <laughs> I don't really go <laughs> like let go and like and go talk to people or something like that. So it it does really takes effort. So. <laughs> yeah. well, that's thank awesome. This is, this is awesome to hear about. I I appreciate your time and and speaking to us today about this. Yes, we appreciate this immensely. This is this is really, really good. Uh, hey, this is amazing. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please hit the subscribe button so you'll continue to hear about new and exciting STEM-related work being done. Tweet us questions, suggestions, and requests at Purdue SOS or email us at k12science at purdue.edu. Until next time, be super, and remember, you are someone's hero. Boiler up! Hammer down!